Hello and welcome to another Crypto Convos episode on the Crypto Basic Podcast. Today we're going to be talking with Monica Acquaintance from the Cadena Project. The Cadena Project's a little bit different as far as where they fit into the blockchain space. And we are going to talk about her project a little bit. But mostly we talk about her feelings on Bitcoin, Ethereum, everything in between, distributed ledger technologies, where they're going, why they're going there, and a lot of thinking about what the future could be like when blockchain gets mass adoption. This was a great interview, so give it a listen. And if you like the interview style here, you can always check out our other Crypto Convo episodes or even Roundtable episodes. They're both great. So Monica Acquaintance from Cadena Project is here now. I just... I heard myself and I'm like, the way I'm saying the pact, it sounds like it's a moment in Game of Thrones history or something yeah. when people came behind the wall. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. Monica Acquaintance from Cadena. Uh, you can check them out on cadena.io. She's here today. We're going to talk about bunch of different topics that relate to Cadena and relate to distributed ledger technologies overall. But before we get into it, why don't you introduce yourself for the audience, let them know who you are, what you do, and uh, and why you're here. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. My name is Monica, and I work at a protocol project called Cadena. We are focused on the intersection of public proof-of-work blockchains and permission blockchains. We started out as a spin-out from JP Morgan Blockchain Research Labs, and about three years ago, we're almost coming up on our third year anniversary. Right now, we're in the throes of launching our public blockchain. So there's a lot going on right now with testnet development and talking to miners and stuff. Before I was with Cadena, I was a systems engineer at a tech startup in New York called Rent the Runway. And I did a bunch of data and backend engineering stuff. And then before that, I was an investment banker. And before that, I was an opera singer. So I've had a whole varied, varied journey on wow. my way to blockchain land. <laughs> so I have, I have a couple questions about that in particular. What is Rent the Runway? Was that like a, an attempt at Uber for airplanes or something? Oh, that's funny. You are very obviously a man because when I say rent the runway to women, it's either, oh my God, that's a fabulous idea or, oh my God, I use it all the time because rent the runway is like the fashion runway where you can rent women's clothing and have it delivered in the continental United States, wear it for four days and then turn it around and send it back. Okay. All it's right. A, well, yeah, that, I totally got that one wrong. There's a lot of logistics stuff going on back there. There's the hundreds of thousands of units of inventory that have to be individually tracked. They're all barcoded. Their their data sequestration program is crazy. There's a lot lot of crazy stuff going on back there. It turns out so that it's closer to the old Netflix model. Yeah, yeah, old Netflix model. Netflix for dresses. <laughs> okay, cool. So I was close. So I, I, Uber for airplanes, Netflix for dresses. It's, a, it's sure. yeah, very, very similar. Yeah. So, so how did you go database, from? Uh, yeah, the oh, sorry, go databases are really not that different from blockchains when you think about it. It's, you're storing your data in a lot of different machines and a lot of different places that have to figure out how to talk to each other in a way that preserved consistency and availability and partition tolerance and liveness. So really the jump from databases to blockchains is not that bad. So, but the jump from opera singer 
to the databases or blockchains is pretty big. <laughs> so how did that come across? Um, so I, when I was in university, I was in the vocal performance program and I really thought that I was going to be an opera singer. And then I realized that I really didn't want to wait 20 years and pay my dues singing in choirs until my voice was mature. So I switched my major to math and then I ended up in the statistics and probability program. And it was just a, it never really worked out, but now we just do a lot of office karaoke. Okay, well that's perfect. Is your office where's your office located? Is it in the US? <laughs> yeah, we're we're in Brooklyn. Our almost our entire team. We have three two in Toronto two in Canada, one in Toronto, one in Vancouver, and one in Seattle, but everybody else is in the US. All right, so there's crazy karaoke parties in New York that that are that are run by your team. Uh, right, I actually got York, invited we'll to a Kadena party. Did you? I was moderating a panel in Thailand and uh, at at a, a conference called Beyond Blocks, and Marie Leaf was one of the panelists. So the uh, night before, she was like, "Hey, yeah. come to our villa," and I wasn't able to go. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that that whole Thailand trip was was our first ever real community push into Asia, and we made a lot of really awesome contacts, especially in South Korea. Can't wait to go back to South Korea. They're doing a lot of very interesting things out there. Yeah, South Korea looks awesome. I haven't I haven't been and everybody at the Thailand conference was just talking about it the entire time. So I was sad that I wasn't gonna end up going to, to something well, inside. I didn't even get to go to Thailand, so you're already better than I am on that one. <laughs> and unfortunately that that uh, conference is gone. They they were the only conference that I enjoyed going to because all the rest of them feel like they're pushing ICOs and that was the one that didn't. Uh, it was sad to see them have to close up shop. Yeah. Well, I mostly go to research conferences these days, and they are awesome. There's a lot of people doing a lot of really great research out there. Protocol development research, cryptography research, this whole verifiable delay function thing out of Dan Bonet's lab in Stanford. Very cool. So what is your favorite research conference if you're just, like, picking one? Oh, I have to plug financial cryptography if I'm any research conference. It's a... 20 year old, not this, not next year, but the year after it's going to be 20 years anniversary. And they originally started out as a bunch of hackers who were into RSA when it was still classified by the U S government as a weapon. So the way that they got their RSA keys out of the country was to print them on t-shirts and wear them to the conference, which they held on Anguilla because they couldn't hold it in the United States. And ever since then, it's been on an island somewhere. Yeah, these guys are crazy. They're the best. And a bunch of really wonderful research, especially like one of the papers on potentially quantum resistant schemes for blockchain and signatures came out, was released at this conference two years ago. So it's called the Financial Cryptography Conference, which is put on by the International Financial Cryptography Association. And I'm on the steering committee now because I loved it so much that I ran to ran to the steering committee. They're just they're brilliant. They're a bunch of nerds and they know how to party it up. That sounds a lot better than a stupid shilly ICO conference that uh, <laughs> that we tend to get invited to. Uh, now I want now I want to go to that. Is it yeah, is it a different kind of island each time? Yeah, it's a different island each time, and the candidates for next year's conference in either February or March are either Mauritius or Kota Kinabalu. 
Okay, I don't even know where either of those are, so that makes them amazing destination choices. <laughs> Mauritius is off the coast of Madagascar, and uh, Kota Kinabalu is in, I think, Thailand? It might be in Malaysia. This is embarrassing. I should probably know this, but it's somewhere like that. I think it's okay to not know exactly where those two particular <laughs> islands are. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, we should probably talk about blockchain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we should definitely move on to actual blockchain talk rather than cool conferences and opera singing. But that was a great introduction. I'm glad we started there. So the project that you're talking about is called Kadena. And you mentioned that it was a spinoff from a, the JP Morgan thing that was going on. And I one thing that, you, that I caught there was that you said three years ago was when it kind of became a thing. And three years ago was somewhere around a year and change before um, Jamie Dimon said that Bitcoin was a scam. So that's a, it's kind of cool to know that there was already the blockchain research going on before that public knowledge even came out. Oh my gosh. Well, it's this case of the like left hand does not know what the right hand is doing because most of these banks have some sort of research division where they pay smart people to sit around and investigate new technologies. Because vendors come to these banks all the time and they're like, we are going to sell you the most amazing snake oil product that you have never heard of before. It's called blockchain. And so they have a bunch of really smart engineers and theorists that they pay to spend 30% of their time vetting vendors and 70% of their time working on whatever they want to work on. Because these people are too smart to just sit around and do nothing all day. And so the, the team that Stuart, the Kadena co-founder, was working for at J.P. Morgan. Basically, they summoned him back from retirement at age like 35 or something to come back to yeah, right. To come back to J.P. Morgan and run a research desk doing whatever he wanted, as long as they vetted vendors in the bank. And so they started seeing people coming to them with blockchain, and they were like, "All right, I guess we need to research this blockchain thing." started doing research in blockchain, they're like, we can make better stuff than all of these people that are coming to us. This is nonsense. So they started making a project inside JP Morgan, which is called Juno. And Juno was a, a permissioned blockchain that made some assumptions about hardware, and but in general was your classic BST-style consensus protocol. And... Uh, they pitched Juno to become part of Hyperledger and Hyperledger was like, no, we don't want it. So they convinced JP Morgan to open source Juno. And then Will and Stu just left. They're like, we're going to start a blockchain company now. And they took the ideas that were first developed in Juno and made a new permission blockchain called Scalable BFT, a smart contract language called PACT, and now we're making a public blockchain called Chainweb, and we're going to fit all of these pieces together. Scalable BFT has been finished for at least a year now, and it's available on AWS if you want to just go and with some clicks, try it out, it's free. And you can just spin up a private blockchain and play around with it. But the whole idea is that the whole integrated stack is a public blockchain and a private blockchain and a smart contract language that you can write a single application inside of the smart contract layer and you don't ever have to leave in order to manage your data between a private and a public environment. 
so the smart contract language is, is a part that I want to break down real quick because uh, yeah. there was a lot to unpack there. But <laughs> the pact itself is, for me, I, I'm not a coder, so I don't understand. Like, I can look at code and it looks like gibberish to me. The first language that I ever looked at that I was like, I might be able to, like, figure that out if I really needed to was the pact. When I looked at it, uh, say, like, six months ago or, or whenever that uh, Thailand conference was, I wanted to do some research with the panelists that I had. So I looked at the pact and I thought, this is really cool. It's a programming language that I can read. And clearly it was designed that way. So what were the thoughts Uh, behind that? That's the whole, you nailed it. That's exactly what PACT is designed for. So when Stu was at JP Morgan, he originally, the thing that got him to retire the first time, he made a language for the trader at JP Morgan to be able to take the ideas in their head and translate it into a trading strategy without having to go through the engineering department. You as a trader are like, oh, you know, I want this percent of allowable volatility and I want to sell when you hit this price and all these. Do you know what the logic is? Stu wrote them a language which is called AlgoGenetics. And that language is still in use in JP Morgan today and makes them pockets of money because traders can actually go and within like 48 hours have a new trading strategy that's actually running in production. So that idea is that if you have a logical thought process, you have business logic, you don't need to be a programmer in order to turn that into something that can actually execute if you have a specific enough language that's designed to do exactly what you're trying to do. So the whole idea in PyPact is you have an idea of like, you know, I'm going to pay Monica $10 every day until, you know, the day of this month, at which point she'll have to pay me 50 bucks. Like you can put that in a smart contract and program it and then hit go because you, you shouldn't need all kinds of crazy like C++ that people are programming on EOS or like some sort of twisted version of JavaScript, like Solidity on the EVM. You just need a very simple language that's designed to do basic blockchain stuff. And that's what the pack created, or I call, keep calling it the pact. Is it pact or the it's pact? Pact, the programming language, or pact learning. Okay, yeah, uh, there's no. It's not the pact. Sometimes we make we joke around at the office and we call it blood pact, but that's like that's like a joke. Pact. <laughs> <laughs> I just I heard myself, and I'm like, the way I'm saying the pact, it sounds like it's a moment in Game of Thrones history or something yeah, like when people came the behind the wall. Pact. So, so anyway, <laughs> the packed programming language it was all super interesting to me. And the, the idea that I could read it was super cool. Does it work with both the public and the permission blockchains that you're working, that you're working yeah, on or just yeah. the backend? It works on top of both. So you can write a smart contract that works either on the public chain, the private chain, or both of them. You can actually have it interact with both sides. And similar to how you might have an Oracle that hits through an API on, say, Ethereum, then you can have the public blockchain and the private blockchain make calls to each other. And the benefit of doing that over just using like the database or something is that the private blockchain can maintain continuity of record and it's all integrated into one stack in the Kadena system. So you should, when we launch mainnet, be able to write a smart contract 
that you boot up your private blockchain and then it just knows how to talk to the public chain without you having to figure out how to cobble it together. That's the problem that we're seeing with a lot of these blockchain projects that are out right now. They're not a complete solution. Like if you want to write something on Stellar, that's fine, except for the fact that Stellar doesn't have a complete smart contract language. So then you're probably going to have to try to figure out how to jerry-rig some other smart contract language to work with Stellar, like maybe Hyperledger, but Hyperledger is awful. It takes them like 120 lines to write Hello World, which, by the way, it takes 10 lines to do in packs. So right now, the tooling for people to do things easily is just not there. It's just why we're making this whole super simple stack. Okay, so 120 lines to write Hello World is a lot. I don't know if that's a lot compared to normal languages, but so that definitely feels like a lot. So, And one of the quotes from the white paper of Kadena, or I don't know if it's called a white paper, but they, they whatever was out there, it Which said that the Ethereum virtual machine, here? there may be more than one now, because when I read it, it was six months ago. I don't know. But okay. It was it was definitely a what I thought was a white paper, but it could have been called something different, like the technical paper or something, where it talked about mm. the Ethereum virtual machine being basically really bad at its job. Yeah. So Stuart and Emily are the lead maintainer of Pact, and I all collaborative wrote a blog post in like November of last year that we released. That's basically dissecting all of the flaws of the Ethereum virtual machine and why it is terrible. And so that, that post is very comprehensive and goes very in deep into that and it's on our medium. But, but basically the gist is all of the things you would expect a virtual machine to handle for you as a programmer, like making sure that you are garbage collected any objects or assets that you don't need anymore so you don't have memory overflow or having name abstraction between where you store something and what something is called. The Indian doesn't do any of those things. And so it leaves programmers and the people that design utility, it leaves language designers, it leaves end programmers and users totally vulnerable to all kinds of problems and bugs and attacks that if they had just designed a proper virtual machine, even the Java virtual machine, which is so old and has so much boilerplate code and is better than what you don't get from the EVM. So this problem of, for example, the EVM, they allow you to infinitely recurse when you write a smart contract, which is how you end up with something like the DAO hack. Somebody can go in and recursively hit the contract and just ask for money over and over and over without it clearing until they've taken all your money and run away. Or the whole right. name abstraction thing, because you don't have proper name abstraction, that's why you can't upgrade your smart contract. Once you put a smart contract out there, its address is its name and it's stuck there forever. And sure, people have had workarounds where they essentially put an indirect contract in the middle where you say that you have a contract and then it calls some other contract which actually has the code in it and then you can change that redirect. But redirects in Ethereum aren't safe either because that's just how you end up with the parity multi-sig problem where they tried to make a multi-sig contract, which is held in a central library. And then somebody went in and deleted the freaking central library. So anyway, there's a whole, you can just read the blog post. It's like three pages or something and it goes on about how terrible the EDM is. But, so we've designed packs to hopefully not have these problems. 
so that people can just go in and easily write the kinds of things on a blockchain that belong in a blockchain and the things that don't belong in a blockchain, like trying to do recursive data analysis, you don't, you aren't tempted to attempt on top of Ethereum. It's crazy to me that people would try to attempt arbitrary computation, like iteratively trying to come up with the best solution to some sort of math problem on a computer where you literally have to pay with every computation with real money. Every time you want a contract right. in Ethereum, you have to pay gas. And who knows what the price of ETH is? It could be $300. It could be $800. Do you know whether this transaction you're going to run is going to cost 10 bucks or 50 bucks? No, you don't. It, it blows my mind. It blows my mind every time. So, and one of the one of the things that I've always noticed on that is it's why we get really rudimentary applications that go on top of Ethereum. Now, Ethereum was always super exciting to me because I love the idea of full decentralization and full, fully decentralized computing and stuff. But as I learn more and more about programming, I'm like, how do you get all of that stuff done? I imagine I couldn't even get done what I use for my Excel spreadsheet for the podcast into the Ethereum blockchain without a massive problem. And you have to know a lot about like how hash tables work and how key value stores work and maps and data storage. And when somebody just wants to write an app, what you want to give them is a super simple, super easy interface to just go ahead and do what they're trying to do. You don't want to have to like teach them how a consensus algorithm works and what protocol design means and how are they going to store their data? Who knows? I would really just rather give them a very simple stack. It's like asking an iPhone mobile app developer to understand how network packets and TCP IP work before they can go and make their like phones. What's this, the Angry Birds game? Like telling people they can't make the Angry Birds game until they understand how network packets work. It's ridiculous. So, so then the solution being, if I were to want to say create, I don't know, an, an Angry Birds D app or app or whatever you want to call it, and I wanted to program it in the packed language, what would my kind of process be from start to finish? Like, how what would I would I create my own permissioned ledger? Or would I do that on on the one that belongs to Kadena already, or how what would that process look like if I were doing it today? So if you decided you wanted to make a completely, a full DAP, completely decentralized, then you could go out to our language website, packlang.org, and download the SDKs for PACT. And you could write your application, and you would have some front-end stuff, some data payload packet, and... Then transactions would be executed on your local machine. And right now you can't actually deploy anything to Chainweb because Chainweb is still in testnet. But right, you testing. could go to AWS and download Scalable BFT, which is our private blockchain. And you could spin up Scalable BFT on your local computer and use it to run your apps for testing and debugging and production until it's ready. And then when we launch in October, you can put your app up. So it was, so once mainnet is ready, whatever I program in the meantime will just basically be ready to go once, once mainnet is turned on live. Right. Exactly. Okay. And would you have the option to do some sort of like self hosting on your own private chain or would that be more advanced? That totally works too. So we have some clients right now that are working on either just permissioned applications 
or hybrid applications where they're using sometimes they're using the permission chain and sometimes there's an intent to use the public chain. Like, for example, we're working with a healthcare project that is and wants to do patient data that's sequestered on the permissions chain and then have pieces of data that are attestations of being served by healthcare providers, basically, that then happen on the public chain. So they're building that right now on the permission chain, and then the whole Oracle is the public thing that will come later after we've launched mainnet. Okay, perfect. That makes that makes sense to me, and then hopefully the listeners, because we're we're crypto basic here, so <laughs> we have to have it broken down for us sometimes. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so to move us past the, uh, uh, sorry, packed, <laughs> real, uh, packed. instead of the pack, just just regular packed and and the blockchains and all of that. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that you had wanted to talk about was how blockchain will eventually touch every part of your life. And a lot of people will say blockchain is just doing things that we already can do in a more difficult way that mm. don't really understand it. They're, they're like, well, we already have computers. They already work. Like, why do we need blockchain? We can just, you know, use Amazon Web Services or whatever we want to do. And then the rest of the, you know, big massive anarchists on the Bitcoin side are like decentralize everything. It must be a hundred percent out there and nobody else can do it. And for me, I feel like there's something in between and the something in between is where I think it might start creeping into the rest of your life. Like how, how do you see that kind of going to start, you know, 15 years from now or something like that? Right. So we're, we're totally on the in between front here. I have a whole bunch of different theories about how blockchain is going to manifest over time. And one of them is this idea that I like to call the blockchain sharing economy. And because what blockchain effectively allows you is granular monetary control over information in a way that we've never had before. Then you can, as a developer, you could write code in a smart contract. And if people like it and think it's useful, they can pay you to use your smart contract by sending you money in your own smart contract. It's this connection of being able to make information, data, workflow streams, business logic, business processes actually inherently valuable because their very existence is a transmission of value. So you can think of something like right now businesses communicate with each other with APIs and then sometime later there's some sort of business agreement where like, oh yeah, I'm going to pay you a subscription of like $20,000 a month Bloomberg in order to be able to hit your Bloomberg API. Instead, you, every time you make a specific request for a piece of information, that request itself could be a smart contract which contains money in which you pay for your request for information. So instead of just Bloomberg, which currently gatekeeps that, then you could have like the New York Times could have a totally different subscription and monetization model where people that are individuals who want to read this story can pay micropayments and it's not onerous for them anymore to try to like get around the New York Times paywall because the hardest thing here is to give people that are actually creating real value access to the people that want it. And smart contracts make that whole thing frictionless. 
Yeah, the the Bloomberg uh, thing that you need to pay twenty thousand dollars to get—that's their um, camera. What it's called? It's like the wire the or terminal, something. The terminal. Yeah, <laughs> where yeah. they literally just release financial news to everybody who's paid before it goes out to the rest of the public. I remember learning about that and thinking, like, that's what that exists. Uh, that feels like it's exactly what insider trading is, except because they're paying for it. It's not really. Yeah, these, uh, we have a very unusual household at my house. My my roommates work for Google and Bloomberg, <laughs> like the two oh, most man. centralized companies of all time. <laughs> and I'm like the crazy blockchain person in the corner, being like, "I'm taking you down." <sighs> we have a lot of very dinner <laughs> table conversations. <laughs> yeah, but the, but because your roommate works for Google, they already know everything you're doing anyway. So they they're. That she, your roommate, she or she may even be a uh, an Android already, and you might you might just not even know it. Yeah, he's already the Borg. It's, it's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> he works on the machine learning. Second team, Borg so reference I've heard. We already it's become so a random. robot. Star <laughs> well, is cool uh, now. The we whole do know resistance is futile. Yeah, uh, I I could get in. <laughs> I don't want to do it, but I have this whole like Borg thing with Star Trek Discovery that I won't that I won't get into on the air. But okay. I, I, no I, Star I, Trek Discovery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we got to we got to stick to blockchain. Star Trek Discovery. They they they've used blockchain and they've moved past it. They're they're in a different they're in a different realm. <laughs> so. <laughs> So anyway, back to that, back to actual blockchain making, it sounds like this is a very common thread of people who create getting some form of value for their creation. And that's not all that different than what we're doing, but because of the way power and money is centralized here, we have things like Bloomberg where they're getting disproportionately paid for what they're doing. Uh, my uncle was a, the CEO of a company called Lux Research at one point. And he was telling me what they got paid for their research projects and how they didn't even care about a client unless they were making, you know, $100,000 for them at least, uh, paying for five or six different ways of doing the research. And it, it kind of blew my mind that they were paying an analyst, you know, $50,000 a year to learn about something and then just selling that to the big companies because they had a good way of curating the data. So it seems like blockchain really does have, or distributed ledger technology, whatever you want to call it, really does have a great use case for at least getting the value to the right person or entity. Yeah. So I have another example that I like to talk about, which is how once you have trusted smart contracts that actually work, then you can start see this way of different companies integrating with each other's workflow processes in a way that right now they, we can't really do because it's difficult and tricky to manage APIs and their access. So let's imagine that you want to create a roommate finding app where you can go and your network will reach out and try to find you a roommate. And then you can make all of that happen inside the app. If you did this in a blockchain world where you could trust smart contracts, then you could put up like 20 bucks, like find me a roommate. And your network of contacts could then go out and the person who connects the person who connects you to the final person who finds you your roommate, everybody along that chain could get some sort of micro reward for like, I introduced you to John, who introduced you to Steven, who found you Kathy, who needed a roommate. And then you and Kathy could do a background checking service 
say like Chase Bank for two dollars, let's use their background check service. And then you could put your security deposit in an escrow smart contract so that you both know that the money is out there in case anything happens, but you're not going to run away with it. And you've done just done all of this all in a DAP, all in a decentralized way, which is so much better than what we have now, which is just like people on Craigslist, and then you try to make sure that you don't end up with a tax murderer. <laughs> and it would probably help with those people who are the... There's a word that Malcolm Gladwell used. I think they were called connectors or something like that. Where super connectors. They, yes, super connectors. Yes, the, those yeah. people connect all of life. They would literally be getting some sort of monetary reward for that now. That they when they put all those people together, they're like, oh yeah, of course, I'm the person you go to when you need to know who to talk to at this thing. And then they put they put everything together. That would it would be cool to see them rewarded in any way other than just being friends with everybody. Right. Yeah. Where I think that we get into some interesting things and not that I want to give EOS any credit, but it's one of the things that I feel like they tried to tackle is when you get to subjective decisions. So in in the example that you gave, uh, what happens if there's a claim against the security deposit that's sitting on the smart contract? And I say the entire house was destroyed. The carpets ripped up the couches, blah, blah, blah. And then the other person says, it was like that when I got there. What are you talking about? So where now we have a situation that has to be handled via some, it, normally it would just be handled by in, in the court if it got that far, right? Like a judge would say it, a single person. But maybe there's voting, maybe there's something else. What, how would you see that playing out in a future where blockchain is super integrated like we've already talked about? So in this, in this future where there is uh, blockchains everywhere and we have this roommate situation where there's a security deposit. I'm interested to see what you would think about as far as how to settle that in the case of a dispute. We can see that it's there, which is nice for everybody. Like this is a security deposit. We know it's on blockchain. We know it's in the smart contract, but how do we say, you know, ah, the carpets are messed up or, uh, or the carpets aren't messed up. Once one person says that the carpets are messed up and the other one doesn't, that would be handled kind of by a judge or an arbiter of some kind today. Well, yeah. So how would you see that happening in the in the future for blockchain? That's an interesting question. Uh, so arbitration in a land of trustlessness is, uh, is a big issue. And lots of people are talking about it. I know at least three different projects that are working on establishing some sort of arbitration network on various protocols. And uh, the model that people have pitched to me so far is this idea that you can put your money in a smart contract and then have it overseen by this arbitration service. And if then something goes wrong, both sides submit their evidence and agree to be bound by whatever the arbitration service says. And whether that's a panel of like, 10 people or whether it's crowdsourced or whatever. We have structures that we can use to come up with this. But I'm not sure that we're ever going to get away from the idea of some neutral third party is going to have to figure out who's telling the truth. Right. But it's, it's interesting to see like people's gears in their mind turn. Like how do you make that part of a consensus or how do you make it part of a, something decentralized or something like that? Maybe you submit the same evidence to five people and the, whatever the majority of those five people come up with is the actual answer. Then you have to pay each of those five people for their time. Yeah. I've always been interested to see how that might end up evolving because to me, it has to happen because the system's so broken the way it is. I think we're going to see arbitration dApps happening. 
I well, I hope so because we're going to need something like that if we're going to move forward in blockchain land. And like I said, I didn't want to give EOS any credit, but they they had that thought. They just didn't execute it correctly because right now it's just some guy makes a decision, and you know they're. And I remember they submitted a decision where the first sentence was by the power vested in me by the EOS collective. I choose to do this. And I'm like, why, why are we using these pronouns? This, this, this is supposed to be <laughs> cryptocurrency, yeah. decentralized. What is this? Well, I think my biggest complaint with EOS is they, uh, well, not my biggest. One of my complaints about EOS that I can say on the air is that they're <laughs> trying to make people program in C++ on the blockchain, which is just an embarrassment. Oh, I didn't even think about that as a criticism. So... How does that compare to, I don't know, Haskell or something like that? Like, why is it egregious? So when you go and you want to program something in a database, you use SQL because it's a super small domain-specific language that does exactly what you needed to do and nothing else. With C++, like, I write C++ in order to program LED art installations. And okay. you can use it to make trains talk to each other. And you can use it to make satellites talk to each other. Why the heck would you use this massively overpowered, arbitrary computational machine on a blockchain when all you really want to do is record transaction A and transaction B? It seems like a totally crazy overkill. Just use packs. It's just so much simpler and so much smaller and you're not going to end up with bugs and problems. It's just, it's basically completely antithetical to everything that we at Kadena believe about how people should interact with the blockchain. So it's, they're basically over-engineering the problem. They're, they're coming up with a bunch, it, the equivalent of somebody who's like, okay guys, in order to pay rent, we need to sign up for Asana. We need to go into Asana and we need to create an Asana working environment where each person will put their contribution towards rent each week as a task. Check it out like that instead of just paying rent. Right. Instead of just like writing a check and mailing it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, well, anyway, that's, that's my complaint about EOS that I can say publicly and defend. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can complain about them all the time because I, I'm just giving my opinion and I don't really know anything. I call myself an idiot on every episode. So, uh, they... also, I'm pretty sure that EOS actually committed securities fraud by doing a regulation S offering, which is a international non-U.S. offering of securities, and then they rented a billboard in Times Square in order to advertise their non-U.S. investor offering. And I'm pretty sure the billboard was decentralized everything. I, I think that was their phrase at some point, which yeah, definitely didn't end so, up being the case. Yeah. Anyway. And well, yeah, we'll stop. We'll stop talking about them, and you know, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. I don't think they're the only ones that are possibly guilty of doing a, a, a securities fraud situation, and uh, it's it's real tough to navigate those waters with all the ICOs and what they did and didn't do, what they said and didn't say, especially in the U.S. with this weird regulatory uncertainty, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. So, yeah, we are just we pay so much money to lawyers; it's crazy. And I briefly worked for the SEC. Will worked for the SEC for almost two years, and so our team is intimately familiar with what you can and cannot say. There's a lot of things that we cannot say. Right. 
And, yeah. and it would be nice to get more clarity on that. I mean, that's, I, I don't know whether I'm for more regulation or less in the U S but I, I just want something there written out. So it's more obvious what everybody should be doing and how they should be handling it. I feel like we're dropping the ball on that, but that's just me. Yeah. I, I agree that it would be nice if we knew exactly what was a security and what was not a security, but I'm glad mm-hmm. that they're not rushing into that deliberation because there's the potential to really stifle innovation if you do like what New York State did with the bit license law, where they're just like, nope, nobody can do this. Nobody right. can do this thing. No crypto. No. And so we, Kadena, one of our public envy companies, we're based in New York. We're going to have to move. We're gonna, even though I really, really, really would like to stay in New York and we have like 20 employees in New York, we're going to have to move the company because we just can't with the whole bit license thing. Yeah, that's very so bad. annoying. And so I'm, I'm very glad the U.S. government is not doing that wholesale. Right. I, I remember the only time I even knew what bit license was, was Charles Hoskinson made a Twitter post where he was, <laughs> he was fuck bit license. Blah, and I'm, uh, I was like, wow, okay, what is this? I need to look into this a little bit. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah he didn't. And then IOHK also has an office in New York and employs a bunch of very good half school developers and we feel their pain. We're, we're going through the same struggle. Are you going to go to Wyoming? Um, I might. Maybe I'll move to Puerto Rico. I hear that a bunch of really cool EOS people are there. We can hang out and we can talk about how great EOS <laughs> is all the time. Uh, I wonder if they're there for the tax haven thing. I don't, I've seen a bunch of people in the entrepreneur community pop up and be like, go to Puerto Rico. You don't have to pay any taxes. It's great. <laughs> Which I'm sure is not exactly what they're presenting it to be on the surface, but yeah, there, there might be some actual wrinkles in there. You might want to check the fine print and hire an accountant before you take any advice from crypto basic podcast. Read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. First of all, never take advice from us at all. If we, if you ever hear us give out advice, that is a bad idea to listen to. And uh, second, we never do uh, give out advice because we're not financial advisors or experts on anything. So, <laughs> all right. Um, I know we're coming close. I think we, I think we're at about like 45 minutes. So I wanted to talk about the, uh, the, the last kind of topic that you had brought up that sounded super interesting, which was the untapped potential of blockchain and what enterprises and big businesses don't know they're missing. Oh, yeah, this is interesting. So we know that big companies are not into public blockchain in general. They're like, ah, what is this thing? Unregulated, very mysterious, high volatility, do not like. And... So I think that in general, that's turned a lot of these companies away from the world of blockchain technology, where there have potentials to either use private blockchains in a way that they haven't thought about yet, or use hybrid blockchain where they can have permission blockchain and then occasionally go out and interact with the public blockchain in a way that they've dismissed because Bitcoin volatility. And... You know, it's not like Bitcoin people have been doing their best overtures as ambassadors to talk to enterprise people in the first place. Right. They're more interested in their crypto anarchy moving to Wyoming, whatever. <laughs> things that they have going on. But 
businesses have this opportunity to either have significant savings in terms of cost reductions and redundancy reductions, or be able to work with their competitor companies in a way that's actually safe, in a way that means that they're not going to take advantage of each other, and instead they get to have this benefit of sharing information, data, standards, values, in a way that they know that they can trust because of the way that blockchain technology works. And there are potential cool opportunities to interact with the public chain if you know that you can do it in a safe way. So, for example, we announced last week at New York Blockchain Week that we are working with a company called UFCF that made, they originally made some of the first ever oil ETFs in the 90s and provided retail access to investors directly to oil as an asset instead of through like the futures market. And so we okay, are working with them whole new kind of asset class that didn't exist before. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I can't talk a lot about it because it falls under the heading of things that I can't talk about, but it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops as we create new kinds of assets. This is like a, keep sensitive information on the private chain. And then once people have authenticated themselves through the private chain, then you can freely trade tokens on the public network with other people that also have these authentication provisions. So it's a way of safely doing AML KYC. That's uh, anti-money laundering, know your customer. And being able to have high liquidity, frictionless, borderless transactions with low fees, don't have to only trade when the markets are open. There's a whole new potential world of cool financial instruments out there if companies will just get their heads out of their butts when it comes to public blockchain. There could be a lot of really cool opportunities out there. You brought up a point that I hadn't really considered. I mean, I've, I think I'd internalized it, but I'd never really heard somebody say it out loud. But that is that the fact that Bitcoin is synonymous with blockchain and then also Bitcoin is synonymous with bubbles and volatility and the, the crypto anarchy thing, that if you are a CEO, you're going to look at it and dismiss it right off the bat. When somebody comes to you about blockchain, you're like, I'm not talking about blockchain. How many times I got to tell you Bitcoin's a scam and get them out of there? And there's a there's going to be an interesting kind of very slow turning of the wheel of getting executives on board with the fact that Bitcoin is not blockchain and distributed ledger technologies are not Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is a blockchain, but it is not all blockchains. And right. uh, big companies coming to that realization is probably harder than I originally gave it credit for. Yeah, it, it's difficult. And there's some nuance in there because every time we go and talk to one of these companies, not only are we the ambassadors for blockchain in general, but we are trying to convince them to use our software, which, is, I mean, we're open source, so there's not really the same level of, like, vendors selling them software. But we are going there to try to sell them something. So obviously they're going to be skeptical of the kinds of information that we trot out of some of them. So, but once we do find, we do have clients with which we have a very good rapport, and most of them are on this bleeding edge of, we want to really push forward the envelope in our industry. We have worked with a healthcare insurance consortium, and that was a really interesting project about sharing doctor's office information because these health insurance mm -hmm. companies have to keep track of what doctors are using what insurance companies and where are they located and how many staff do they have and all this stuff. 
but keeping those records up to date is super costly and a lot of is very time consuming. You could just share all of that data if you knew that, you know, United Healthcare wasn't going to then steal all the data and run away and leave you out in the cold. Which is what right. blockchain technology is great for. Everybody can replicate a node of the private blockchain, and you know that everybody's contributions are visible to all. And you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. So there, there are people out there that are starting to get it, and it's very exciting to see that momentum. We've got a supply chain client. We're working with a large insurance company, not healthcare insurance, like insurance, physical assets, processes, business processes. Very cool. There's a lot of cool stuff going on right now. Yeah, I see it. I see it throughout the industry. All the stuff that's super cool. You, There's this whole evolution where at first it was just super cool that there was possibly money that was not controlled by anybody. Then it was, it got cooler in a different way and it cooler in a different way. And then it was, then for a period of time, it was just everything but on blockchain. And it was all the stuff that you already had. Everything like, but on blockchain. <laughs> yeah. It, that's, oh my gosh, that's so true. That was such an annoying phase. Yeah. So many things. It was just like, it, yeah, we already have this thing. Why do we need calendars on blockchain? What are you talking about? We don't. <laughs> just we leave don't. calendars where they are. No. <laughs> and and now I think we're finally starting to to mature to the point where we can see what it's good for and what it's not. The idea of being able to access medical records when I give you permission, like, oh, you have this patient, this token. Okay, great. Yeah, you have permission to look at their medical records now is, a, is an amazing feat that solves a decades old problem of these medical facilities being unable to share information in a good way. Like there, there were attempts to do it in the cloud, but that's not that safe. Yeah. No no better way to do patient consent than to have actual keys. (laughs) Like you're like, Oh, I need this doctor to be able to see my data. Let me generate a key from them by clicking on this button in this app. And then I'm going to send it to them. Like, hello? It seems so yep. obvious. It, seem, it seems obvious to us. It'll seem more obvious to more people, I think, as we go forward in time and we things get easier. I mean, they're, they're just not that easy right now. It's so scary. I, I still have anxiety every single time I send a, a Bitcoin transaction or any transaction. Like when we pay our editor with Bitcoin. When I send him the Bitcoin, I'm like, oh, is that going to work? Did I put it in right? Like, oh, no, what happens here? So, yeah, I still <laughs> send test transactions. I, I do it. I'm like, I'm yeah. going to send you 50 cents. Make sure you get it. I, I do it because if you fuck it up, it's gone. And that is yeah. so scary. Yeah, I, we're going to get past that eventually. And that is when we'll start seeing a lot more ease and a lot more doctors that are willing to accept it but not accept but w- willing to accept blockchain as a technology rather than accept bitcoin as a payment for instance but yeah that that, that wasn't the yeah the the ease of use will come and once the ease of use comes the the use cases become more and more obvious and that is what has me the most excited about the future of tend to say the space but i don't think that's accurate i think it's the future of the the world not the space I like that. The future of the world. The future of all of us. But may things yeah. get easier and safer and empower people in a way that right now we're empowering corporations. Exactly. Which which I think that anyone but the top echelon of those corporations are going to agree is probably a bad idea. And even the corporations, they might say, yeah, it's really stupid to give me this much power, but I got it. So what are you going to do? Well, 
there's a, I have a little bit of crypto anarchist in me, just a little bit. <laughs> it's it's there. I, I was talking to at a at South by Southwest. I talked to uh, Vinay Gupta, who had worked on Ethereum, and he said something that really resonated with me, which is that the reason we're looking at decentralization as the answer is because of how corrupt everything got with the centralization we had. That doesn't mean it's the answer. It just means it's different from what we have. So it seems like it's the answer. It might not be. You might not be needing to decentralize everything. Well, I'm ready for the pendulum to swing in the other direction. I think it's a symptom of the times as a whole, right? Because we have our, our depression era stratospheric wealth gap mm-hmm. where you know, the 0.01% of people have all the power and have all the money. No wonder people are starting to, to fight back. Yeah. It's happened throughout history. This isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. And it's just happened differently each time. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have fewer guillotines this time and more Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can agree with that. L- less guillotines. It's the new tw- trending Twitter hashtag. <laughs> yeah uh, right, digital well, gold not guillotines i feel like we could make a hashtag out of it get, get, digital gold not guillotines is really long i don't know we, we yeah we gotta we gotta truncate that a little bit make it more targeted more poignant tokens not guillotines all right okay we'll, we'll workshop this one <laughs> <laughs> so we're basically at the end of the episode. I, I want to give you some time to just say where we can follow you, where, where we can follow Kadena. Everything's in the show notes, but anything you want to highlight in particular uh, as we close out the episode to find out more? Uh, the easiest place is just to join our Discord channel where we are all lurking all of the time. And then you can ask us whatever you want. It's kadena.io forward slash chat. And you can just hop in there and talk to any of us. If you're not into Discord, but you really like Twitter, you can follow us or me on Twitter. I sometimes tweet. That's, uh, that's, that's basically it. And then Canada.io has all of the other stuff. Like if you're really interested in PACT and you want a reusable, readable smart contract language for real humans, it's there. If you want to download scalable BFT, it's there. All the things. What was it? I used a, a random like test environment on the web at one point. What was the what was that called? Or, or the website for that oh. where you could actually go in and play with the pact. Or yeah. pact language. <laughs> not, not pact. Um, so we have a web browser version of pact that you can actually go and try on your phone because Stu, who is a complete crazy person, actually wrote an implementation of Blake 2 in Haskell so that we can have a blockchain that compiles directly to JavaScript on your phone. So all of that wow. available on your phone at, uh, I'm pretty sure that it's tri- canon.io forward slash tripact, or you can just go to pactlang.org and it has all the stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we got that out there because that was, I had fun playing with that even though I knew nothing about what I was doing. So maybe Yeah, and now it's received a, a cosmetic upgrade and there's full formal verification of user code. So you can write like, hey, make sure this account balance does never go below zero. And it'll be like, okay, and it'll just do it. All of that is now available on the web browser version too. That's ah, super cool. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. This was a great interview. We were kind of all over the place. We almost started talking about Star Trek, which is our listeners would have loved that. <laughs> but, um, but I think we I think we kept it in check. And this has been a really awesome, interesting interview. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. This was fun. All right. 
So remember, none of this was financial advice. It was all personal opinion. Do your own research. Uh, all investments have inherent risk. All of that stuff, that applies for both of us. And uh, for Crypto Basic, I've been Brent Philbin here with Monica Acquaintance. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back.